Welcome to 360 Degrees of Healthcare with Dr. Stan, an in-depth look at our industry from our very own Chief Medical Officer, who will talk with other medical and industry professionals on the changing and evolving landscape of the healthcare system from the inside. And now, live from Zero Studios, our very own infectious disease expert with a contagious personality, Dr. Stan Schwartz. Good morning, Stan. Good morning, Megan, and thanks very much. And I'm happy to report I finally got my hair cut. Nice. Looking good, Stan. Thank you. Thank you. This one is going to last until vaccines come. <laughs> so a couple of quick updates before I introduce our guest. You know that COVID is now the leading cause of death in the world worldwide. It has far exceeded one of the diseases that has always had that top rank, which is malaria. And uh, it's really exceeded it by a lot. We're seeing new hot spots across the South and the Southwest. And I am not happy to report that subsequent to a large rally that took place in Tulsa about a week ago, we're starting to see an uptake in, an uptake in COVID cases, which many of us expected. Uh, it hasn't affected hospitalizations to a, to a great degree yet, so that's good. Uh, most of the new cases, especially those being reported in the, south, uh, uh, in the South and Southwest, are young people. And we're looking at the 18 to 34 uh, range, probably related to more social gathering, parties in the home, uh, bars, night entertainment, and so forth. One of the things I think is terrifically important for people to understand is so many people believe that COVID-19 has a binary outcome. You either get well or you get dead, one of those two things. So if you're young and your risk of death is low, you don't worry so much about it. The problem is there's really a third outcome, and that is permanent damage. The way COVID inflames the lungs may lead to scarring of the small air sacs in the lungs, scarring also in the heart, kidneys, other organs. So there is a third outcome, which is chronic disease as a result of COVID. And you may not be spared that because you're young. So dying is not the only bad outcome. Um, another thing we've learned in the last week, two weeks, is that an old-fashioned steroid called dexamethasone, which has been around for a long time, is an effective treatment in reducing the likelihood that people who have severe lung uh, uh, involvement with COVID will either go on to going on to a respirator or eventually dying of it. So we have two potential treatments now, the dexamethasone and that investigational drug that's been made available called remdesivir. So there's really a double-barreled approach now, which is excellent. Although, you know, it's really been pretty rampant, only a small fraction of the U.S. population has been affected, something around five or six percent. So it looks like we have a ways to go because it's going to take a minimum of 40 percent and probably closer to 60 or 70 percent till we get to that so-called herd immunity that really starts to reduce the spread of this infection on a community basis. And the other interesting thing, and we've reported this right along, is that we've learned that the people who get the minimal infections or the so-called non-symptomatic, asymptomatic infections, don't develop very many antibodies. And when they do, they don't last in the blood very long. So whether or not this will play a role in whether or not you get immunity from a very mild infection that lasts for a month, a week, three months, or a year, we don't know. But 
probably minimal infection will probably confer minimal immunity. So there's a whole lot to learn about that. So I would like to introduce my guest and my friend, Dr. Tobias Barker of Paladina Health in Colorado. Uh, Paladina Health is a employer-sponsored direct primary care organization. And Tobias, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and in 25 words or less, what exactly is employer-sponsored direct primary care? I love a good challenge. Um, so uh, my, myself will be easy in 25 years or less. I'm the chief medical officer for Paladina Health, and thanks for having me on, Stan and, Stan and Megan. Uh, I think, um, so I've, I've been here for about a year and a half before that was the chief medical officer for CVS Minute Clinic, which is a chain of, of retail healthcare stores and CVSs across the nation. Um, so direct primary care, employer-sponsored direct primary care, it's put simply is when the employer pays a per member per month to us for kind of um, turbo boosted primary care, which in the long run leads to total health care uh, spending decrease for these self-insured employers. So they, you know, we, we use that PMPM to have smaller panel sizes, gives us more time with each patient, um, more access points. So the patients really don't have a need to use, for the most part, to use outside emergency room visits or urgent care visits. We have the time to do a lot of the procedures ourselves. And so, um, and just with more time, are able to just holistically cover more than just the one chief complaint they have. And so they can come in for a, you know, a cut or a laceration on their arm, but leave with their, um, their, colonoscopy to be screened and there, you know, all the other things that we need to do to keep them healthy. So in the end, good clinical care leads to decreased costs. And that's, um, that's what we do. So one of the things we know about primary care is that outcomes are, are very much influenced by what we call social determinants of health. Can you afford it? Can you get to health care? Do you understand health care? Do you have good nutrition? You know, all the things that bring to bear on a person's health. How does employer-directed primary care, does it remove most of the financial barriers to primary care? Like for people with diabetes, they were supposed to go in two to four times a year? So it does remove some of it. And, and you know, you can imagine how, how that is because if you do have, and, and one way it removes a lot of bar barriers is you have the employer who's also the payer. So you have the the payer and the primary care for the, for the patient working very closely together. And so if you're seeing from a primary care standpoint, oh, here's a, here's a, um, a medication we should be adding for your particular population, they seem to be using this more, or we need to do more spirometry because they seem to have more lung um, issues than others. We can, we can work with the employer who's also the payer um, and together look at the claims data look at what the unique issues of that population are, and then make the right clinical adjustments to the, uh, to the clinic setting to be able to help that population. Um, the, from a social determinants of health standpoint, is, yeah, I think that works into it. If you, if you know that there's issues with, um, with um, internet or nutrition, having access to the payer, to the employer, um, to be able to uh, work with them around how to help those employees, to be able to post mm -hmm. the right things in their lunchrooms, to be able to, you know, this is all very important. So I think having that tight relationship is really important and really beneficial 
from the employee's health point, you know, standpoint. So, adding on to what you just said, so if you're working on behalf of the employer, do you, does the employer ask you questions about general health questions about their population? Do you serve as kind of like medical counselor to the employer? Yeah, that's right. And, you know, you could see that in spades recently here with COVID. And so the employers were needing a lot of um, thought partnership from a clinical standpoint in terms of, and frankly, workflow changes in terms of how do I get my employee base back to work safely and being able to think with them around what the worksite re-engineering would need to be, what sort of screening and how to get the screening questions to their employees before they would leave home and then how to make sure their temperature is checked once they arrive on the worksite, um, how to do surveillance testing to be sure if there is a small, uh, um, you know, because as you mentioned, not every patient is symptomatic. And so no matter what kind of screening filters you have, someone is going to get through. And you know, how you set up your workplace can help determine if it's a very small um, um, spread of infection or if the entire company needs to be closed down. So that's an example of how you know, we work really closely with the employer as the need dictates. So there was clearly a need being dictated with COVID. And that entirely changed how we were able to support our, our um, employer client partners. You know, it's interesting. The other day I was listening to a uh, discussion. So many employers have legal counsel that they'll ask legal questions, but so few have medical counsel to yeah. get healthcare related. And COVID has really brought that to the forefront. You know, another question I have is I've got a lot of friends in primary care, their fee for service primary care. And for the most part, you know, since COVID started, you know, uh, it's been crickets in the office, so to speak. And they really scrambled to get telehealth and all the other things, you know, installed that just hadn't really been a part of, you know, fee-for-service primary care. How has that affected you? I mean, as far as your ability to deliver care in the, I don't want to visit the doctor era. Yeah. So fortunately, this was the perfect model for something like COVID because, we were already set up in kind of a capitated, you know, system. So we, we were, we've never been paid on how many telehealth visits we do, or how do you code for a text back and forth? These are things that we've always been doing where we're, our job is to keep everyone healthy in the most cost effective way possible. And oftentimes that is through texting. Oftentimes that is through phone calls or video calls. Um, and so these kind of, uh, uh, in, in to some atypical communication methods for us was quite commonplace. And so it, um, did we ramp up our virtual visits during COVID? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the the capabilities were already, were already there, were already in use and were already, um, you know, in, with the right financial modeling, we didn't have to rethink through, you know, how do we code for a, you know, a text or whatever, whatever the case may be. Are you able to get, enough testing done right now and you're located in Denver. Are you able to get enough testing done for all the people that should have it and, you know, and not open the floodgates to have everybody tested every day, so to speak. So we're actually in, in 20 States and we have over 120 clinics in 20 different States. And so with that are probably 50 different scenarios when it comes to testing. Um, we have um, some that are near, manufacturers of testing who are offering free testing outside of their manufacturing plant. We have 
some where um, the Department of Health regionally wants you to work with a particular healthcare system in terms of getting tested. We're certainly able and have preferred contracts with LabCorn Quest, you know, the national providers to do the testing ourselves. Um, but I think what you have to do is look at what that geography presents to you and what, what um, assets are there and try to figure out what is the quickest way to get the answer you want. And, you know, anymore, it's also what is the most um, medically adequate uh, uh, test? Because there are a lot of people, well, fewer now, but as you, as you know, Stan, there was a, a month ago, I would say even as recently as a month ago, there were a lot of companies out there trying to fill this vacuum um, in the, because everyone wants testing, everyone wants answers. And so some of the tests were frankly not good. And, and so it's not just a matter of access to testing. It's, it's having the due diligence to know that with the prevalence of disease in that particular market, mm -hmm. what is the test, you know, based on their sensitivity and specificity, what is your actual result going to tell you? And will it make you comfortable um, telling this patient definitively yes or no on something? Or is it something where you would have to clinically, you know, treat them anyway, regardless of what the test shows? So all of those nuances are, 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 you know, implicit within the testing question. Great. Megan, I see that we have questions. Let's yeah. go ahead. Bryce, thanks for that back and forth. Um, I know that we could probably talk all day, but let's do get to some of our questions. Um, first question that we have is, this looks like a good question for Dr. Parker. Um, we know that healthcare quality drives better outcomes, ultimately lowering plan cost. How does direct primary care influence quality? Yeah, so that the, it's exactly right. The question is, is part of the answer. So quality does drive down um, spend and how do you ensure quality? So you need to have a robust quality infrastructure. Part of that is really IT driven. So we have, we have in the background running um, a lot of analytics for each of our providers and their particular employees um, who are their patients. So when they come in, we can certainly, at point of care, we can certainly tell um, from that patient, what were their claims? Again, another advantage to, be, to partnering closely with the, the employer who's the payer. We can see what are their claims? Where have they been these past 12 months? And what, which of the, you know, so what's been going on otherwise medically with them? What are their medications? And what are the generic equivalents of them? And where are they on their screenings, on their, on their breast cancer screenings, colon cancer screenings? If they're diabetic, where are they on having the tests they need to stay healthy? Um, and then we have a bunch of other analytics around utilization, so including the Hopkins ACG risk score, but are there are a few different metrics around what's the propensity that this person is going to use, is going to require the use of healthcare um, you know, services in the next six months or the next one year. And so if the, for those patients that are not right in front of you right at that day, you can, you can look at all them and say, hey, show me all of my patients, all of these the employees, and rank order them by who's the most likely to need medical care in the next six months based on, based on their, their meds, their utilization to date, and their, um, their risk factors or demographics. I, I want to make sure to be really t close and really be touching base with those patients the most frequently because they're, they're they're statistically the most likely to need some kind of uh, healthcare assistance. We'd rather that assistance come from us and not from an expensive and, and um, you know, in, in some ways less safe um, outside emergency room for that patient. 
What a, an excellent description of population health. Jordan? Yeah, thank you. Uh, Megan? Thank you, Tobias. What do you actually feel would be the most important aspect of the relationship between a patient and a primary care physician? Yeah, again, I think the question had the answer. So the relationship is the most important part of the of the of the doctor-patient interaction. I think I think having the time to build that relationship, our 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 the, the shortest visit we have is 30 minutes, the longest is 90. Wow. 30 and minutes. Amazing. The shortest because you know it's very likely that whatever the reason was why you came in, there's a lot of other things that need to be addressed and, and things that maybe you hadn't thought of when you came in or things that you did, but, but thought it was like other healthcare systems where it was kind of, tell me the one reason you came in and we'll have to set up an appointment for the others because there really isn't time to go through all that. We do have, and that's not a unique experience for anyone probably, um, but we, we do and the expectation for our providers is that we have that time to sit and figure out all of the aspects for healthcare. There's always, there's always counseling that can be done no matter young, how young and healthy you are. And in fact, you know, a huge opportunity, a lot of people like to look at how well is your quality when it comes to caring for a diabetic, for instance. But I would say the more, more important quality you would want to have in a, in, a, in a healthcare partner is how do you keep the much larger number of patients that aren't yet diabetic from becoming diabetic? Right. How do you keep those pre-diabetics healthy um, so that you never have to show how good you are at caring for diabetes. And all, you know, a lot of those things are not something you'll find on a fee-for-service menu. There's no ICD, well, there are very few ICD-10 codes and, and E&M codes for like, I want to keep this person from getting a disease. And that's, again, why a different payment model just makes sense. And, and that time is the gift because otherwise, if you're out of the direct primary care model, and you have under 30 minutes, I mean, you're probably being asked to reschedule, you have a preventative care visit, and now they want you to reschedule for a diagnostic visit just because you have further questions. Yeah, that's right, Megan. Right. Okay, we've got another question, and this is anonymous. Do you believe the current social situation is having an impact on the health of the country, either positive or negative? Mm -hmm. <laughs> The current situation, you know, I think that's to a large extent. One of the things that's bothered me is that the current social situation is being driven by division. You know, COVID has set up left versus right. It's set up north versus south. It's set up uh, young versus old, set up red versus blue. I think that's been one of the destructive uh, impacts of COVID on, the, on our social fabric in this country, which, you know, many of us see as fraying a little bit right now. And, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to when we're beyond this conversation. Tobias? Yeah, I would, I would echo what you said, Stan. I think the most problematic part of COVID is, is the, if at all possible, deepening of divisions that, that, that we see happening um, across the country. And, you know, you know, doing the work, the hard work necessary to address those issues and get to the other side of it is, I think, going to help the health of the nation in, in, you know, ways more than just medically. Yeah, it's unfortunate, but that's why we're here pushing that positive scientific message. Okay, we have another question that is from another anonymous. I've recently seen it reported that the respirators have been identified as being worse than no respirator. 
at least as far as the fatality rate and other complications. Is there any validity into this? Validity into this, sorry. Let me take that question. Uh, need to make a very important distinction. A respirator is something you wear on your face. I think the person is talking about a ventilator, which right. is the machine that helps you breathe when your lungs become incapable of delivering enough oxygen. And the answer to that question is very interesting. What we've learned is that we can delay putting people on ventilators by high flow oxygen and doing something which was absolutely sacrilegious only a few years ago, and that's keeping patients who are short of breath on their stomachs, laying on their stomachs instead of their backs. That would never have been done 20 years ago. I mean, it, it would have been medical malpractice. What we recognize now is that, that what's called that prone posturing can help a patient not develop the inflammation in the bottom of the lungs that has been really one of the causes of the scarring and the progression of the disease. So yes, the tendency now is not to do early ventilation, intubation and ventilation, and to use high flow oxygen instead. And that looks like it's being successful. And this is another example of learning while you're on the road. Yeah, it, you know, it's interesting because I just saw the news reporting that this week. And I did see the same um, interaction in Italy months ago. So why is it taking us so long to catch up? Uh, the reason for that is it usually takes an average of 15 to 17 years for things that are proven scientifically in the literature to percolate out through the entire medical establishment. At least it's going faster now. Right. Yeah, this is actually lightning speed to you know the yeah. sharing of of medical best practices, which the best practices, as Stan said, actually were counterintuitive to almost everyone's training. And so, mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's great to see. It's great to see the flexibility that is out there in the in the in the sharing of knowledge in the medical community now. Right. Okay, we'll go to our next question. With the increase of COVID-19 cases in the South, there seems to be contradictory information that the heat and summer will lead to a dip in cases. Is the weather a factor or is there some other explanation? Well, one answer to that question is, look what's happening in Arizona, which is poster child for heat and low humidity. You know, it was originally postulated that, that humidity had a significant effect on the on virus transmission you know in the winter time with colder air that's that's heated that drives the humidity way down as you know from the static electricity shocks you get in the winter so it was thought that as the weather got hotter more humid etc uh there would be less viral transmission uh doesn't look like that's necessarily the case right now yeah i mean that's I'd say we're, we're, we're as, as, as you'll hear on almost every answer around COVID, we're learning. And the virus has never been in existence in humans during a summer before. I mean, it's the first human was fall or winter last year. So, so I think, you know, we, we'll, we need to be, we'll, we'll, we'll be learning. Well, and we actually just had another question come in that ties right into this. Are air-conditioned buildings spreading COVID widely? Good question. I don't know around the filtration systems of most buildings. I know that I've spoken to a lot of people in the airline industry around around the very um, 
small micrometer size filters they have in the airplanes and why that air is actually, it'd be good to get your take on this, Dan, but my understanding is that that air is actually quite, quite safe and quite well filtered, um, bringing in a fresh air from the outside and, and filtering all of it through, through very small pores. I think it would, I think the answer might be a variation of that is what is that building's, you know, HVAC infrastructure and what are, what, what, what are the, what is the, the, um, air turnaround time per hour in each of the rooms and what are the filter sizes of the, of the vent of the filters that they do have. You know, one thing we've seen and the CDC has, has gradually started to refine their guidance that, you know, a real exposure, uh, is probably going to be indoors is probably going to be close contact and it's probably going to be at least 15 minutes. So air conditioning, you know, Keep in mind that the places that are air conditioned are the places you tend to sit longer also. That's a good point. Probably has some effect. What we know is it ain't as good as outdoors. Yeah. yeah. Okay, here's another question for Stan. Do you feel COVID-19 is impacting, accelerating the shift in what we see as a member first economy? So member first economy, you know, we define that as an economy that puts the member first rather than the provider first, uh, you know, especially in healthcare. And I think it is, I think we're realizing now that, you know, the way we have delivered primary care in the fee for service world where you really go to the doctor mainly for sickness, you know, is going to gradually be replaced by the concepts that Tobias has talked about is, you know, good relationship with the doctor, the ability to access the doctor many different ways, not just an office visit, the ability to have the time to really delve into problems. You know, the average contact time with a family doctor in a fee-for-service world is about 12 minutes. Uh, and, you know, the doc needs another three, four, or five minutes to complete the medical records. That's just not very much time to address issues. I, I remember very well a few years ago going into a doctor's office, there was a sign on the wall that said, please, only one symptom per visit, yep. which, you know, yeah. th th that's just heresy in healthcare. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's very rare in the human body that every, you know, that one single thing is a standalone issue anyway. I mean, everything is interconnected to everything else. You need to get the entire, you need to get all of the issues in play. That's great. <clears throat> Tobias, I have another question for you. How have you dealt with people pushing back on distancing, mask use, and sanitizing? During the Tulsa rally last weekend, we heard many young people say they're, they didn't want to wear masks because they're healthy with no fear of COVID-19. Yeah, I think there's there's a couple of, so it's education. Um, and we're, and, and again, we're learning on a weekly basis what new education we can be sharing with the younger generation. It's been obvious for a little while that, um, that the younger people can be asymptomatic spreaders of the disease. And so, you know, depending on their social situation, that can be a, a powerful motivator, depending on if they're um, living with older parents, if they're visiting their grandparents, you know, just the, the concept of being able to protect others. I think even from a self-preservation standpoint, however, you know, Stan mentioned at the beginning, it's not, it, it's not if you, you know, the fact that if you don't die, you know, you can keep training for your marathon, like those aren't their true choices. You can, you can live if you're long, if you're young, but still have significant damage to your organs, including your, your lung capacity. 
um, and, your, and therefore your exercise capacity. So I think, um, you know, being able to inform them that, hey, if you get this virus, you, it's true, the odds of you dying are less, but we don't know yet. There's a certainly a greater than 0% chance that you'll have long-term damage to one or more of your organs. And I think that's pretty scary no matter what your age is. Mm -hmm. Well, we've got a really good question coming in, one that um, I have on my mind as well, which is what happened to antibody testing? <laughs> Should this even be considered for an option for employers? And what about temperature checks? And I'll just add into that as well. There was an actor um, and comedian, D.L. Hewley, that tested positive for COVID-19 after collapsing on stage last week. And he stated that he had no fever, cough, shortness of breath, so he's basically asystematic. So what can we learn from that? And what should we do about the antibody testing and temperature checks? You know, we, one of the peculiarities of what happens in the lungs is that the inflammation in the lung membranes can actually keep you from absorbing oxygen, but not prevent you from exhaling carbon dioxide, you know, oxygen in, carbon dioxide out. The thing that makes you short of breath is a buildup of carbon dioxide in your blood, not low oxygen. So there have been people who have just gotten very low oxygen levels, they get confused, they get weak, they may pass out, develop what we call syncope, and they're found to have very abnormal chest x-rays, yet they never had very many lung symptoms. And that is just one of the really remarkable findings about COVID infection. As far as the antibodies are concerned, we still don't know exactly what to do with it. You know, if you have a positive antibody test, it likely means that you are exposed to a coronavirus, probably this unique novel coronavirus, COVID-19, but there is maybe some cross-reactivity. Whether the antibodies are protective, we don't know right now. So the problem with antibody testing is it doesn't really give you information to make good decisions on. Tobias? Yeah, I, I think, you know, the, 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 just as you said, Stan, you know, the problems with antibody testing are, one, making sure if it says you have antibodies, it's actually an accurate, it's actually true. I mean, if you we're at about 5% um, prevalence right now in the nation. So if you just took an average person and said, what are the odds I have antibodies? But not you didn't have testing, you'd say, well, it's probably 95% chance you don't have the antibody. And so the test has to be so good to counter that very strong pre-test probability that you probably don't have the antibody, but it's got to be a very good test. And so that's, that's one issue. It might, you know, and if it's not a very good test, it has just as high a likelihood as giving you a wrong answer is a right answer. What you certainly don't want are people that think they have antibodies and think they know what those antibodies mean to be out there with, you know, taking care of their um, elderly parents or being patient for right. um, public facing for their job. So you've got the test itself. We don't, we know it's just with our low prevalence, the test itself might be wrong. And even if it's right and you're like, no, I'm hundred percent sure there's antibodies. That means you've got a certain number of antibodies, but we don't know what level of antibodies you need to be protected from the virus. You may have antibodies, but it may not be enough to actually be protected from the virus. And then the third issue is, if, you, if we did also have that knowledge, like, okay, you need this much to be protected against the virus, those titers, and you have that, then the question is, well, how long are they going to be there? We know that some coronaviruses, like the one that uh, my family apparently gets each year, um, those antibodies, you know, the common cold, um, last for a few months. Um, so we don't know how long 
We don't know the level you need. We don't know how long they'll last for. And frankly, with the current testing and the current low prevalence, we don't even know if you actually, the positive test means positive. So that's kind of, that's kind of three ways I would look at it. Stan, I don't know if you'd agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. Thank you. Okay, we have a question from Arvada, Colorado. Given the postponement of non-emergent procedures during the COVID-19 pandemic, what long-term effects do you foresee regarding population health and how long do you think it will take for any pent-up demand to be released? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And, I, and uh, I think from a population health standpoint, I th you know, we'll see, but I think that it's, it's lasted short enough. I mean, there's enough clinics opening now um, and enough places where you can safely go to get blood draws um, that in conjunction with virtual visits, you can start to take care of some of these um, things that were pent up. I think, you know, mm -hmm. you know, even if we had virtual interactions with our patients and said, it's time for you to go get a colonoscopy, if the GI suites are all shut down because of COVID in the community, you can't go get a colonoscopy. So I think there is pent up um, demand and I think we'll see really busy outpatient services here. Um, you know, we already are starting to see the ramp up of busy outpatient services as they open. Uh, statistically, I don't know. I think hopefully we're hoping that the, the whole, whole thing lasted three months and that we can, from a pop health and preventative standpoint, we can catch up. That's the, that's the goal. Thank you. Um, we have another question from Taylor. Colorado seems to be one of the only states that can continue to have low hospitalization numbers while the number of cases in the U.S. continues to rise. Why do you think that is? Pure conjecture. I was talking to Stan about that, you know, before the show started. Pure conjecture. But one, everyone I see in Colorado is like bicycling or skiing or like, you know, inventing a new rollerblade or something. So I think, I think there, there is probably more... Um, uh, in shape, possibly younger. I haven't even looked at the demographics of the state compared to others, but maybe it's just me getting older. But it seems as though there's, there's you know, younger, in shape people, that helps. I think the fact that the city planning, even for the huge, you know, the largest cities like Denver, are pretty, pretty spread out, pretty um, commuter friendly for bicycles and whatnot. And I, I, I think that the cities that are not as large are very spread out. And I'm sure that, you know, I'm sure that plays into it as well. So pure conjecture, I'd say, you know, healthy, healthy lifestyle, younger population and, and city planning that, that is not too clustered. I don't know, Stan, from an ID standpoint, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna place a small bet here on, on body mass index. One thing we know is that obesity uh, tends to, predispose people to get that overactive immune response that we talked about on several episodes of the show before, where the antibody reaction and the inflammation, your body trying to fight it actually damages the lungs. And as we can see here, Megan is now in Colorado. Um, <clears throat> Coloradans have one of the lowest uh, average body mass indexes in the nation. I really think that that's going to be a factor. And as you said, also the you're generally not only the thinnest state, you're also one of the healthiest states. Yeah. But we'll see. Thanks, Stan. <laughs> well, how much do you think the wearing of a of mask in public settings would help the numbers from a percentage basis, especially in large gatherings? 
Oh, there are, there are, there, you can go online now and see a variety of different projections of, um, from even a state level, if mask use is enforced versus if it's not, and the difference is pretty dramatic. Yeah. Dramatic. I mean, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, clearly, when you've got infected here and not infected here, no one wearing a mask is high risk. If the not infected person wears a mask, it may have a little benefit. If the infected person wears a mask, it will have more benefit. If both people wear a mask, it will have the maximum benefit. So the answer is mask up. Mask up. Mask up. Well, we sincerely hope that having access to our experts in the field has been a valuable resource as we all navigate the impacts of COVID-19. For more information, including a chat capability where questions are answered live, please visit thezerocard.com forward slash COVID-19. That's thezerocard.com forward slash COVID-19. And on behalf of Dr. Stan Schwartz, Chief Medical Officer, and our very special guest today, Dr. Tobias Barker, and myself, Megan Smith, Sales Executive at The Zero Card, we thank you and hope to see you again in two weeks, same time, same place. Take care, wash those hands, and stay healthy. And mask up. Mask up. Mask up. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed the time with our very own Dr. Stan for 360 degrees of healthcare with Dr. Stan Schwartz, a part of Zero Studios. Tune in, subscribe, and review our podcast to keep current with the ins and outs of the medical and healthcare industry from the inside out. <laughs>